Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. My favorite show, favorite show that I watch every year is Band of Brothers. Love the show. Love just everything about it. And so I was stoked to get on Jared Frederick, the author of Fierce Valor, um, on the show. But first, before we go any further, please, please, please take two seconds Two seconds to hit that five-star review button or share it with a friend. As we continue to grow this podcast, we need our listeners to help us out and point us in the right direction, right? So five-star reviews, putting us in front of the people, that's how you help the show, and we would really appreciate it. Okay, Jared Frederick has a lifelong passion for American history prior to his career in academia, Frederick served as a park ranger at the Gettysburg National Military Park and the Harps Ferry National Historical, Historical Park. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, he is um, an assistant teaching professor at Penn State Altoona, and he is the author or co-author of the book Fierce Valor, the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. We'll link to all of this in the show notes, so check it out there and... Follow along on Twitter. I'll be tweeting out interesting things that I find about this book and Ronald Spears at Ryan Ray Sr. Without further ado, here is my interview with Jared Frederick. Well, Jared, welcome to the War Room. Thank you for having me. Okay, so first question I have to ask, because um, my daughter asked me, she goes, Dad, what is Fierce Valor? As I was reading the book across the room. Um, so what is Fierce Valor and why the topic, uh, why the title for this book? We thought that that phrase was the perfect encapsulation of what Ronald Spears was all about. And we dedicated a lot of thought and effort into what appropriately title the book. And the title speaks to, I think, the two different masks or the two different hats that he had to wear as a military commander. Because on one hand, he was known for his cold, calculative, fierce ways. But then on the other hand, there was this brotherly affection where people respected him for his valor and his skills on the field of battle. And we thought the merging of those two phrases was the perfect representation of what he was as an officer. Okay. And obviously, most listeners would be aware of um, Spears from Band of Brothers. Um, and obviously that's the subtitle of the book, The True Story of Ronald Spears and His Band of Brothers. Um, is that what originally got you into Spears or what, what, what captivated you about him? This book is in many ways an unofficial sequel to the book that my co-author and I previously wrote, which is entitled Hang Tough, The World War II Letters and Artifacts of Major Dick Winters. My co-author is the curator of the Gettysburg Museum of History in Pennsylvania, and his museum is the home of what we believe to be the largest easy company collection in the world, and that includes not only three-dimensional artifacts, the uniforms that these men wore and the things that they carried, but also many of the photos and documents and official records that they kept with them for the remainder of their lives. Uh, and so in more recent years, uh, his collection has come to include Ronald Spears's items, those that, that still remain. 
And within that collection is uh, much of his wartime correspondence with Dick Winters, uh, a, a large array of photographs from his professional and private life. And we felt that finally, somebody had enough material to write a biography about this incredibly mysterious man. He's one of the few major characters in Band of Brothers that never had a full book dedicated to him. Uh, and so we certainly thought that now was the time to meet the real Ronald Spears. And we attempted to decipher fact from fiction throughout that entire process. Yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, um, Spears doesn't even have a full episode dedicated in Band of Brothers. He's prominent in some episodes, but a lot of the characters kind of have a full episode uh, that kind of shows the war from their perspective. With Band of Brothers, um, confession here i think it's the greatest show ever i watch it once a year so i've watched it many times uh and for those who haven't watched it a watch it but then b you've got to watch it like four or five times just to remember when this person dies who were they who are they connected to um spears is a little bit easier of course but he plays a prominent role in the first episode uh at two different occasions the first is he allegedly and we're talking about the shooting the prisoners act uh incident but then he also helps take the um the, uh, the German um, guns that they have there. And you kind of forget that as things go along, that he was involved with that, but he really wasn't a part of Easy Company uh, until much later on. So let's kind of back up here, because if we're familiar with Easy Company, Dick Winters, uh, maybe Kevin Sobel, um, those names, let's kind of go back and, and talk about the genesis of where he came from, how close was he related to Easy Company throughout the, his time before he took over command, um, and some of the myths that um, came up around him and dispelled fact and fiction for us. Sure. Um, once he entered the ranks of the 101st Airborne Division, he initially found himself in Company C of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And that is the company that he trained with at Camp Tekoa in Georgia. And he remained with that outfit when it moved across the Atlantic. It continued training in England amidst the countdown for D-Day. And then sometime in April or May of 1945, we believe, he was rotated to Company D amidst a petty officer rivalry. Uh, Spears did not get along too well with his battalion commander, and uh, he minced no words in regard to that disaffection. Uh, and so that was a sore point of contention for Spears because he had trained with Charlie Company for well over a year by that point. And now he was being uh, transferred into a battalion of strangers with people who he did not know. Uh, and so between the spring of 1944 and up through the fall of 1944, he serves exclusively with Dog Company, as it was known. Uh, prior to Operation Market Garden in September of 1944, he is transferred again and he is serving in an intelligence officer capacity at the battalion level. Uh, but that did not curtail him from going out on missions still and trying to gather intelligence all on his own. And in fact, he was uh, seriously wounded in Holland in October of 1944. And because of the high rate of attrition among officers in Holland, uh, for that reason, we believe that he was rotated then back to Dog Company 
immediately prior to the Battle of the Bulge. Through much of the Battle of the Bulge, uh, he continues to fight with his old outfit as a platoon leader, and then at the iconic moment on January 13th, 1945, destiny awaits. He's standing on the sidelines as Easy Company is attacking the town of Foy, and that is when Major Dick Winters calls him forth when the commander of Easy Company stalls amidst the attack. And the rest, they say, is history. Uh, Spears remained uh, the company commander of Easy Company, therefore, from January of 1945 until the regiment was disbanded in November of 1945. And uh, even though he's on the sidelines through much of the series, uh, he actually became the longest serving commander of Easy Company. Yeah, it, in um, Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers, I was just listening to it with my son the other day, and he said that something to the effect that Easy Company had three great commanders or whatever it was, Sobel, Winters, and uh, Spears, all, all for different reasons, but they but they, they were really kind of blessed to kind of have these three men at different parts when they needed them. Um, we got to Foy, so <laughs> I want to go back, but I have to ask about Foy. In, in the show, obviously, it's depicted that uh, Dyke starts to panic. Uh, they get down behind the hay bales. I've read conflicting reports that maybe Dyke was actually injured. Uh, maybe he did panic. What's the real story there? Um, I haven't been able to find conclusive evidence to one extent or another. Um, as we were writing this book, uh, the National Archives was shut down amidst COVID. Um, and we had to be very picky and choosy about what documents we wanted to, to try to go after. Um, and so uh, as of the moment, it's still up in the air whether or not Norman Dyke uh, froze under the pressure of the moment or he was wounded. Uh, the accounts among men in Easy Company is conflicted. Uh, people like Carwood Lipton and Bill Garnier uh, said that he cracked under the moment. But you have other paratroopers like Forrest Guth who claimed that he was in fact wounded and Norman Dyke gets a rough deal in the historical memory as a result. Uh, and so uh, that has yet to be fully confirmed one way or another. So talk to me about the pressure of writing these accounts, because you think about the Dyke story. I just watched the Manti Teo documentary on Netflix and I'm familiar with that story, but I was watching that going, oh man, wow. This poor guy was ruined because we all kind of jumped to conclusions. Of course, it's only been 10 years, so he's able to kind of write the record. Um, these people, I think there's a, maybe one or two of the 101st and, uh, and all that are alive left. Not, not very many. It's a handful, if any. Um, but they're all dead, right? So you're having to go to letters. How do you balance writing these stories and filling in the gaps or not filling in the gaps? It's a great question. And indeed, uh, writing about Dick Winters and Ronald Spears was very intimidating at the outset in my mind. I first saw the series when I was in high school. And yes, I look back all those years ago, I never in my wildest dreams could have imagined that I would have had the opportunity to write about these individuals. And, but in any case, in those moments of uncertainty, where accounts are conflicted, rather than often making cement conclusion remarks, we try to present both sides of the story and we try to bring these different accounts into conversation with each other. Uh, now, all that said, 
we typically tend to defer to the, the eyewitness testimony of people who were actually in Spears's platoon when a lot of the more controversial aspects of his career were purported to occur. Uh, and one uh, really excellent example of this um, is a, a rather unknown figure uh, who served in the 101st Airborne during the war. Um, and that was a 19-year-old kid from Ohio whose name was Art DiMarzio. Uh, and we were blessed with this book project to have the assistance of Airborne scholar Mark Bando, who's interviewed over a thousand World War II veterans, particularly those from the 101st, going all the way back to the 1960s. And he had a real treasure trove of resources that had not been widely used by other authors. Uh, and uh, we had uh, the blessing of his collaboration amidst all of this. And somebody like Art DiMarzio um, is a perfect example of a, a largely unused resource who was a member of Spears's platoon, said all these things happen. He was interviewed before the series came out, before any of these guys were famous. He has no reason to lie, especially considering the fact that he implicates himself uh, in some of uh, the more shadowy exploits of Spears. And so in cases like that, we tend to rely upon people who we can confirm were actually there in the moment when these things supposedly happened. Why was it important to be a Tacoma man? The Tacoma has come to represent the, the acme of endurance, I think in the realm of the United States military. And paratroopers who were training there and were aspiring to be paratroopers there uh, realized that at the time. They realized that they were part of something that was cutting edge, something that was new, something that was experimental, something that was going to create a new standard. And in, in the same time before, you know, it's around the same time that the Army Rangers are forming up, the origins of the Navy SEALs are, are being created during World War II as well. But uh, you know, by and large, prior to World War II, the, the military did not have these elite fighting forces like we are accustomed to today. Uh, and so uh, the, the men who walked through the gates and walked out with paratrooper wings on their chests uh, realized that they were essentially the best of the best, uh, that they had been put through the utmost rigors of, of physical training. And that in and of itself was an achievement even before they were deployed to battle. Okay. And so um, they leave Tacoa, they get shipped overseas. You talked about the, the kind of transfers. Did Spears have any, my, uh, you know, again, so the, the, the vantage point, I guess, probably for me and maybe a lot of listeners is, is from a heavily easy company mindset. So uh, Sobel is always, you know, we're not doll company, we're not Fox company, we're easy company. Did Spears, see Easy Company as anything unique or separate, or from his perspective, were the companies that he were a part of as equal to Easy until he joined? You know, he, in, in historical retrospect, in the years after the war, he doesn't write too much about Charlie Company or Dog Company, at least from a sentimental standpoint. Uh, but he does express this sort of affection 
in regard to Easy Company. And he states this time and time again in his correspondence with Dick Winters throughout the 1980s and through the 2000s. Um, all that said, uh, one of the, the lengthiest and most in-depth accounts that Spears wrote from a firsthand perspective uh, was a report that he wrote a few years after the war uh, chronicling his platoon's exploits at the Battle of Carantan in mid-June of 1944. Uh, and that was a, a completely unexplored aspect of his uh, military adventures uh, that, uh, to my knowledge, no other author had, had written about uh, up until the time of our book's release. Uh, but uh, you know, Carantan, of course, is something that is depicted in depth in Band of Brothers. There's a whole episode dedicated to it. Um, but there, too, uh, Spears is interwoven throughout the narrative. He's this character who lingers in the shadows and has a few good one-liners about death and, and fate and duty. Uh, but then you don't see him for the rest of the, the episode. Um, but all the while, as Easy Company is helping to hold the line during those fierce German counterattacks, uh, uh, Spears' platoon is almost annihilated, almost uh, entrapped and encircled. He's wounded again. Uh, and uh, if, if I'm ever so lucky for this uh, book to be adapted into a movie, I think you could just focus on that chapter by itself, um, since many of his other adventures are exploited so in depth. Um, but that was one really revealing episode. What was D-Day like for Spears? For D-Day, Spears found himself in a very similar situation as was the case with many other paratroopers. It was one of absolute uncertainty in the first few hours. Uh, his stick of paratroopers uh, lands about a mile and a half, two miles, north of the contested crossroads of San Mary Glaze. Uh, shortly after 1 a.m. on June 6th, and much like many of the other C-47 aircraft, uh, their, their load of troopers scattered to the wind. And uh, initially, Spears can only locate two other men from his plane who land in the immediate vicinity. Uh, and while we might think that his uh, warrior ethos would compel him to move toward the sound of the guns at San Mary Glees, uh, he had an objective to go to, and he instinctively started moving his little squad toward the coast. And it was uh, shortly thereafter, perhaps within minutes of them landing there, uh, that these three paratroopers encounter three oblivious German troops uh, walking down the road. And this gets us into the first of many myths surrounding Spears. Uh, Spears told his men, we're going to jump them. We aren't going to kill them because they might be able to tell us where we are and we might be able to get a better bearing. And so they emerge from the shadows. They disarm the three Germans who were uh, very young um, going by, by one account, um, possibly even conscripts from a, another country. Uh, and a, a line of communication starts to slowly open up. Uh, one of the paratroopers with Spears is uh, the aforementioned Art DiMarzio. Uh, and he's the one who attested as to what 
happen next. Uh, and it is uh, DeMarzio and Spears's platoon sergeant, uh, Buddy Corrington, they start to give these men cigarettes. And here's where the story about Spears handing out cigarettes to prisoners before he executes them uh, originates. Um, but, but the ironic fact of the matter is that Spears didn't smoke. Uh, and so uh, he wasn't handing out cigarettes to anybody because he probably didn't have any on him. Uh, but uh, the, the harsh reality of the moment compelled these three men to, to execute the soldiers that they just captured because Spears informed these two men that there was nothing that we could do with them. There was nowhere to take them. There were no stockades. There were no prisoner of war pens. There were no military police. The Americans had an objective to get to. They had to do so quickly. Prisoners would slow them down, possibly even endanger them. Uh, and so this, this was the, the grim reality of the moment. Uh, and the thing to keep in mind is that Ronald Spears was not exceptional in this regard. Uh, there was plenty of cold blood on the hands of both sides that night. Uh, there was retribution that was ongoing. Uh, there was this more uh, calculated form of violence to the extent of what, what are we going to do with prisoners of war, you know, when there's no other ground troops about. Uh, and so this was the first of many rumors about Spears that started circulating. It's funny to hear you talk about the cigarette thing because in the show they actually he actually bums a pack of cigarettes off someone else. Uh, I, I never thought about anything other than okay he's bumming a pack of cigarettes uh, to give them away. But it's funny that 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 detail might be is why they included that in there is that he does it. He's not actually a smoker. wasn't a smoker at the time. That's <laughs> that's an interesting uh, little little ad they had there. Yeah, and as an additional anecdote to that, you know, when you go to, you know online fan stores or you know wow. craft stores that are online with fan-made products related to band of brothers invariably every product with spears's image on it also incorporates the lucky strike logo mm -hmm. um, and so in the process of historical memory and fan commercialization um, the cigarettes are something that are always associated with him even though they weren't in real life yeah, and you know, I think you, you touched on this briefly. Let's maybe unpack this. Uh, what was the command from top down on what to do? You talk about uh, there's these practical, even so, you, you have what the commands might be, but then you have just a practical, like we have to go get this objective. We have three Germans. They know theoretically where everyone's at. They could expose us. What was what were they told before they got on the plane? Well, the, the legend suggests that at an informal divisional level, that the division commander, Maxwell Taylor, told his men to take no prisoners. Now, I'm not sure if that, that was ever communicated on paper or formalized, but that order was perhaps given with the same sort of realization that Spears made once he was on the ground. Uh, that there was nowhere to put them. And uh, perhaps it was also an intimidation tactic as well, that they wanted to send the Germans a message that these paratroopers were men not to be trifled with. And it, it fit perfectly within the image of paratroopers that had been told to the Germans 
because the Germans had been told that American paratroopers were inmates who had been let loose from insane asylums. Uh, and, and so there were, there were many uh, myths um, and uh, PR aspects mm -hmm. uh, to the fierceness of paratroopers that this all feeds into. Well, and one of the things that the show depicts is that Spears allows these myths to go unchecked uh, because he thinks it gives him an advantage over um, kind of how he interacts with the men. Is that true or is that a myth? That's that's absolutely true. Uh, Spears did nothing to dispel any of the rumors because the rumors empowered him as an officer. Uh, nobody was was going to dare defy him if there were stories about him killing prisoners of war and even one of his own belligerent sergeants. Uh, and so this this served him well in the capacity as a platoon leader and a company commander, but it, it served him less favorably in the realm of the historical record because the stories about him, which were already exaggerated from the beginning, they, they metastasize, they, they grow and grow and grow with the decades uh, to the extent that veterans of Easy Company are just making up stories about him. There's no other way to put it. Now, one story that started spreading around the company at reunions and, and scuttlebutt in decades later is that Spears had returned to the States after the war and he had become a Boston police officer, but he had been dismissed because of cruelty uh, inflicted upon people that he arrested. And absolutely none of that is true, other than the fact that he returned to Boston after the war. Everything else is completely made up. Uh, and so uh, it, it just it goes to show that if, if rumors and myths are not dispelled, um, of course, we see this every day in weekly news, uh, they just grow and grow and grow. And where did that mentality come from? Do we know why did he, he just intuitively understand it? Did he learn that from somewhere else? There is a story, I think, in, in, in the show that he kind of alludes to, but where, where did he get this idea like, hey, let this stuff go? Because if you look at some other great leaders, they, you know, sometimes they will let stuff go, sometimes they won't. They don't want people thinking wrongly about them. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if I can pinpoint a singular moment as to when he embraced that philosophy, but as best as I can tell, going back to some of the earliest counts of, about him, uh, that he was just always a very quiet, taciturn sort of individual. And in my mind, he realized the value of separating the officer class from the enlisted men. Uh, and this is something that Dick Winters uh, preached as well, although uh, Winters did not always abide by his own philosophy. Winters always talked about having a barrier between these two categories of soldiers, but he nonetheless became a, a fatherly figure to many of them anyway. I think Spears more successfully uh, was able to live on the other side of that fence, so to speak. There were moments where he did show affection uh, and where he uh, showed this level of camaraderie. Uh, but I think in the minds of a lot of his men, he was this unreachable, unfathomable figure who always kept his arm's length. Uh, and it makes sense 
um, because I've had friends who've served in the military in more recent years. And you know, they often say, you know, you can't always become attached to enlisted men because inevitably enlisted men may die. And that just makes it all the more difficult for you to perhaps send them into harm's way. And so uh, that's very much a, a possibility in regard to Spears's logic. Yeah, but, but he was able to do it in a way that the men at least feared him. And he also seemed to has, have, he also seemed to lead by example quite often, not, not, not afraid to be the first one um, you know, to, to storm something. And so even if he is separating, he's also leading in a way that's like, okay, you, you, you're not above us. You are one of us, but maybe separated. Mm-hmm. I think the root of that is that he demonstrated a sort of fearlessness uh, and that goes back to uh, the semi-fictionalized quote from the series about accepting the fact that you're already dead. And once you do so, you'll be able to function as a soldier should. Uh, I firmly believe that Spears adopted that logic in regard to his own exploits. Uh, and that is what propelled him to be such a cool, calm, confident leader who was able to lead individuals in these dire situations when he was needed most. That's certainly how Dick Winters categorized him. You, you talked about him being injured a couple of times. Um, how bad was he injured? And there's a, uh, at least a, a viewpoint when you study this period of history of um, kind of a couple of conflicting things I want you to un- unpack here. So Dick Winters, I know, has said that, you know, when someone is injured, you kind of almost feel, I don't know if good form is the right word he said, but you're, you're, you're happy that they may have a ticket home, right? But then on the flip side, if you didn't kind of try to get back, you might be looked down upon, um, but then you also didn't want to leave your company. You didn't want to get left behind. And so how did Spears manage being injured, coming back? Um, was he one of the ones that was going to go AWOL just to get back? How did he ha- navigate those streams? Uh, so he was first wounded at Carentan as his platoon faced possible obliteration. And there were uh, fragments of grenade that went into his back and in his thigh, possibly his arm as well. Um, but the accounts are a bit conflicting on that point. Uh, and so he is eventually shipped back to England. And while he is recovering in England, uh, he's actually recorded for a radio program, uh, a little snippet during what was called the Victory Parade of Spotlight Bands. Uh, And so there was live music and they would interject little anecdotes about soldiers overseas in the midst of them. And his Spears' hometown newspaper reported of this Um, But to my chagrin, I was unable to find the actual recording of it. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but I listened to countless hours of the program, which is online and couldn't find it. Uh, But uh, he further recovered uh, in in England, and he was then rotated on to battalion headquarters where he served in an intelligence capacity. Uh, As we move ahead to October, of 1944, uh, this may sound outlandish, but he he swam the Lower Rhine River all by himself to go conduct reconnaissance. And he gathered intelligence and spotted a, a number of key enemy locations 
And then he absconded with a captured German raft and he was swinging, swimming back or rowing back across the, the lower Rhine River. And that's when a German machine gun got the best of them. And again, he was wounded in the thigh and also in the buttocks um, in true Forrest Gump fashion. And, uh, and so uh, after he was wounded in that instance, um, he was relocated by train to a large military hospital in a Parisian suburb. And he was in recovery there for about two months. Uh, and so the, his paperwork indicated that he was seriously wounded in October of 1944. Um, and so he was, uh, he was spending a lot of time laying on his stomach uh, between uh, October and early December of 44. Uh, and then in early December, just a week or so before the Battle of the Bulge commences, uh, he rotates back to the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, uh, which is outside of Reims at a place called Camp Mormelon. Uh, and that's when he's put back into Dog Company, uh, which lost a number of its officers killed or wounded uh, during the time in Holland. Uh, and so uh, that, in short, uh, is the wherewithal of how he was wounded. Uh, but it's, it's amazing that he wasn't wounded on more occasions because uh, he wrote of several close calls that he had in the months bookending that. Yeah, it, it's, it's quite stunning because you, if you, um, someone like yourself obviously knows this far better than I do, but if you start reading these accounts, you'll have someone who acts very brave, somehow they survive, another person act brave and they, they get clipped and that's over. And so they don't have a story to tell. Both were acting equally brave and one just doesn't make it. And so um, it's hard, I think, for the average consumer of history to, to understand how do we measure something like bravery? Because there's so many men who lost their lives doing stuff very similar to what Spears did. I think dedication is one of the key ingredients. Uh, it's very well possible that Spears could have gotten a ticket home, especially after his second wounding. Uh, but he had a fierce dedication to the regiment. He saw Colonel Robert Sink as a, as a father-like figure. Uh, he had, um, despite some of his earlier drama with other officers, uh, he had formed friendships. Uh, men in the regiment, uh, all fellow officers in the regiment, called him Sparky. That was his his nickname, uh, which is uh, most definitely a, a less sinister nickname than Killer, uh, as some of the enlisted men uh, referred to him. And I, I think that was the the core element that brought him back, time and time again. So, Battle of the Bulge, obviously, probably the second most famous battle in U.S. history, at least in that, that theater of war. How did he survive? What was it like for his perspective? What do we know about that time? Because, um, again, you, you have a, a very unique battle with a, not only do you have the enemy, you have the, the land itself as an enemy <laughs> that you're fighting against. And so it's, a very, it's, a, it's very interesting to look at this because you're like, wow, you're getting shelled, but you're also just trying to survive. And you can't hardly survive in the elements. The bulge was particularly disorienting, and uh, Spears wrote of the very terrain that you just mentioned, uh, because uh, in walking through 
the woods north of Bastogne, uh, one could easily get lost because all the trees looked the same. They were planted in straight rows. Uh, and when you turned around after walking through them, it looked like you were just standing up against a wall of wood. Uh, and, and so on a number of occasions, he had, he had close calls. Uh, his company was uh, located near the railroad tracks on the northern outskirts that were leading into town. And a few platoons of Germans tried to use those railroad cuts to sneak into the heart of the American defenses. Um, and Spears and his men were, were there uh, when they found out that this trap was potentially being sprung on them. Um, there was another account that Spears wrote about uh, in a, a letter that he penned to Stephen Ambrose uh, that I don't believe was used in the book Band of Brothers, but it's a good story uh, where uh, Spears goes out on a solo patrol once again. And, you know, it, maybe he moves 30, 50 yards out in front of his lines. It's foggy. And he encounters a German shepherd uh, just uh, sitting there quietly looking at him. And in that moment, Spears thought, for God's sake, don't bark. <laughs> because he didn't know like, how far away the master was. Is this a, a patrol or a guard dog for, you know, German defenses? Uh, and Spears thought, if this dog barks, I've had it. This, they're going to open up on me. Mm-hmm. And so he slowly started to back up. Uh, very, very quietly, as he uh, described in his letter, uh, until he made it back to the safety of his own lines. And so it's, it's the little stories like that uh, that help bring this mysterious guy to life, uh, that he did have these moments of fear. He did have these moments of uncertainty, uh, despite what his reputation might indicate. Yeah. And, and so... Um... At this battle, um, obviously they're getting shelled, you know, mercilessly, and so it's over and over. Hearing people from Easy Company or other people that have just been in war like this, um, the psychology of you know why does it land in Skip Monk's foxhole and go off and not mine? Um, you, you've talked a little bit about his mentality, but these in kind of entrenched battles, uh, did he struggle later on with life with because going out on a single patrol, the dog barks, did he struggle with why me? Absolutely. Uh, This is something that he referenced two or three times in his post-war correspondence, especially when men who were standing or kneeling beside him were shot. And if he was a a foot to the left or the right, or if he had not moved 10 seconds earlier, he would have been struck down too. Uh, And unfortunately, this is just the the, the grim calculus of wartime. Uh, and I've spoken to many veterans who play these mind games for, for years afterward. And uh, really, it all just comes down to the fact that it's about being part of the luck of the draw, uh, so to speak. But that most definitely is something that Spears pondered in later years. And, and was his mentality, you kind of talked about this, this dedication, this fearlessness, this um, you know, he's viewed mythologically. Do we kind of see a post-war Spears that 
um, is more humanistic, more human than maybe we get uh, during the wartime spears? I think so. But the reason why he was reticent to revisit any of it is that he served another 20 years in the army after the war. Most members of Easy Company, that was, you know, 1945 was it. They would never wear the uniform again. Uh, and so Spears went through a lot more trauma than many of the other men in, in Easy Company. Uh, he endured uh, horrors in Korea that easily matched, if not uh, eclipsed, what he saw at Bastogne. Uh, he saw many more men die. Uh, he later serves in Southeast Asia in an advisory capacity. And when he finally does retire, he throws away all of his uniforms. And I, I think that's a perfect representation of, of how he thought about his military service. One, that it wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything too spectacular. And two, it was really horrific. And he was really eager to put it behind him. Uh, and then, then he falls into the role of a bureaucrat in the Pentagon um, in the last few years of his career as well. Uh, and so he was simply ready to move on. Yeah, I, I want to talk about um, a little bit about Korea here in a second. Um, so you mentioned kind of his look back that it's a long career, um, multiple wars he's involved with. Um, it was that moment in Foy talked about earlier as we're kind of working up to that, at least. Was that a, a memorable moment for him or was it just this is what's happening uh, I move. I move forward because not only does that moment happen, I think the great. Okay, there's the, the two greatest moments of Bandit Brothers are uh, the moment in Foy where he runs through the town and back, uh, and then the other side of that is um, when Joe Toy and Bill Garnier get hit, and you see Buck Compton just kind of fall apart, and that captures just how hard it was on these men. And those are both surrounded by this battle. Um, so, do those moments rank for him as anything extraordinary? I don't think they did, uh, because when Spears was asked about Foy by Ambrose, uh, Spears is very succinct about it all, and he said that the only thing the only things I can remember about Foy was the large open white fields of snow that separated the trees from the town, and also his very close dodge of a German 88 millimeter shell that almost knocked him down. And he said, that impressed me. Uh, and that, that was the only thing he, um, he had to say really about, about Foy. But, and one of the other interesting things, um, when, when Spears watched Band of Brothers at home with his step-great-grandson, who he was very close with, uh, after he watched the Foy scene, he turned to his grandson and he said, wow, did I really do that? <laughs> uh, and so um, it, it leads it open to speculation. You know, to what extent does the, the series exaggerate or to what extent did Spears simply forget? Um, most of that uh, Foy scene, as well as the testimony in our book, is based from the reminiscences of Carwood Lipton. 
Um, and even if Spears forgot, it was something indelible and it left an imprint on his sergeant. Yeah, because that 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 episode is kind of Lipton's episode. And so you kind of you kind of even seen that in that episode. So what, what's your take on it? I, I believe Carwood Lipton. Uh, I think something that incredible uh, for people who witness it uh, is something that is seared into their mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, just given the, the absurdity of it and the theatricality of it, uh, I, I, I tend to believe Carwood Lipton on the matter. But I, I think it's interesting because when you get into these memory games, uh, Spears was so focused on the matter at hand of connecting with Eye Company about averting friendly fire, about resurrecting this assault that has stalled. Uh, He was so consumed and so focused on those elements. He never considered, oh yeah, I'm doing something macho. Look at me. Well, Uh, say that listening to everything you said so far, he's going out on solo reconnaissance missions. He could have sent out some private or a group of privates, I'm sure to go do this for him. Um, So he, he, he seems to live in the moment, which would make it hard for him to reflect on things that other soldiers might consider incredibly brave, whereas he's just doing them because that's his job. So I can see where that's that that that's hard. Yeah. For him maybe and, I mean, and to, to put it in, in a tamer analogy, uh, you know, oftentimes when an athlete completes a great play, you know, oftentimes the fans have a, a firmer recollection of it than what right. the athlete does. And that's once again, because the athlete is zoomed in on the ball or running to the end zone or, you know, what have you. Uh, it, it's, I, I think that's a fair analogy to an extent. Yeah. Okay. And so um, we get to the end of world war two and um, obviously he's a part of easy company. Now they take the Eagles nest. They get to do all these really, from a historical standpoint, kind of cool things at the end of the war. Um, and as you mentioned, for most of Easy Company, that's enough. They, they've seen enough. Even Dick Winters kind of contemplates maybe sort of, and then, but for him, it's enough. Um, what pushes Spears to go back? I think, and there's no firm answer to this, uh, but a part of me believes that at the end of the war he felt a bit adrift uh unsure about what he was going to do next uh and this perhaps in no small part has to do with his uh, rather tragic divorce with his first wife and so he married a wartime bride about two weeks before d-day and then when the war comes to an end uh she finds out that her former beau who she thought was dead for the past four years, uh, was in fact captured and now comes home alive. Uh, And so she has to choose between her pre-war love and her wartime husband. uh, And she chooses her pre-war lover. Uh, And so everybody else, all, all the other Americans come home feeling victorious, eager to embrace civilian life once again and instead spears comes home dejected without his wife without his child uh and so it was perhaps 
him feeling, hey, I have nothing else to lose. I have nothing else lined up for me. I'll take a go at it, making a career out of the Army. Yeah, that, that is one thing that uh, isn't really talked about enough in Band of Brothers. I don't know if they should or not, but it's he's always um, taking these items. He's sending them back to the wife and then yeah. find out later on, of course, that the, the wife left him, as you said, just like, wow. Because he was he was serious, at least in the show, about looting. Was he serious about it in real life? Uh, that, too, is a, a point of conjecture uh, because uh, Don Malarkey claimed that Spears would smuggle out anything that wasn't nailed down. But uh, Webster, uh, David Webster, uh, who's uh, another one of the featured characters in the series, uh, his argument was is that uh, Spears was too noble to do something like that. Uh, that Webster thought that only the lowest of the low would rob people in such a blatant manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and his argument was is that, that Spears was too good an officer to do something like that. And so here, too, the jury is out, but obviously the filmmakers opted to go with the more colorful route <laughs> because it, it just adds another degree of complexity uh, and uniqueness to the Spears character. Well, it, there's a sense in which you watch Band of Brothers. I don't remember what the story was, um, uh, but when I was going through the book with my son, uh, I, I distinctly remember one of the stories that they told um, had to do with characters who aren't in the show. But they adopted that story. I think it's the, maybe the the last patrol or something. They adopted that story to fit the characters in the show. And so part of what we're watching when we're watching that show is part of it's the representation of real people, but also part of it's kind of the ethos of what's going around. So even if Spears wasn't necessarily looting, there was looting. Um, yes. Winter seemed to be quite okay with it, from what I've heard from his 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 take on the on the matter. Yeah, um, everybody was getting souvenirs to some extent um, in the collection of the Gettysburg Museum of History. Uh, two of the u- really unique things on display, there's a Luftwaffe dagger and there's also a Luger pistol that Spears brought home. Uh, and Winters uh, mailed himself home two dozen captured enemy weapons uh, <laughs> bit by bit. Uh, I found that out after uh, we, we wrote the book and I thought, oh, that would have been a great nugget to include okay. because uh, as the battalion commander, he was in charge of the mail. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he could control and censor other people's mail, but no one was looking at his mail. Uh, and so uh, he, uh, he made ample use of government shipping uh, during or right at, at the end of the war. Okay. So, uh, just last few minutes here, I have a couple questions, help us maybe understand, and you might not have all of these answers understand, but, um, I'm gonna ask you about the various characters from Band of Brothers and Spears real life thoughts of them, uh, from what we know first Sobel, obviously he wasn't in easy, but he would have been around Sobel. He would have heard Sobel and he would have observed easy dealing with Sobel. Did, do we know what he thinks of Sobel? I was unable to find any written record on Spears's thoughts on Sobel. Uh, his interactions with him would have been very limited. If there was a meeting of battalion officers, I'm sure that they would have crossed paths. But uh, Spears uh, was never under uh, Sobel's command, was never in command of him. Uh, and so uh, that 
remains a mystery. Yeah, and do you have any thoughts on Sobel? Because um, obviously he committed suicide later on in life, um, and and I've wondered from reading various accounts um, how much uh, how much of it was that he was troubled by maybe what was being said about him post war, and did he get a fair shake? It's a sad post war life. I I think that he felt that. Dick Winters had bested him in this struggle for power within the company. Uh, And it's in the realm of possibility that that is something that he was ashamed of, that he had a company taking away from them, uh, from him before he could even prove them in battle. Uh, And it's, it's really, it's a really interesting and unusual dynamic, I think, in regard to how his men appraised him, because he, Sobel always got an invitation to come to company reunions. I think a lot of the men were willing to let bygones be bygones. Uh, Bill Garnier always tried to send him an invitation and always was trying to reach out to his family. But as, as you mentioned, um, there was something that that troubled him with long-term effects. Uh, he uh, attempted to take his life with a, a weapon, and he was blinded in the process, and he spent his last few years in a veterans hospital, uh, blinded and largely alone from what I've been told. Uh, and the one of the, the the eerie things is that uh, Sobel died the very day I was born, um, and, oh, so, wow. uh, and so uh, some of uh, some of my friends joke that I'm uh, uh, Sobel reincarnated. <laughs> um, but uh, that's uh, an interesting immaterial side note. Okay, what did, as far as we know, or if we know, what did Spears think of Lewis Nixon, one of the more interesting characters in the show, at least? Uh, here, too, Spears didn't have too much commentary on Nixon. Uh, I, I think they got along. Uh, the officers did have late night drinking sessions uh, in April and May uh, 1945. Spears didn't drink too much because he thought that it would make him lose his sharpness. But there were times when he let his guard down. And uh, I like to think that Lewis Nixon was the one who instigated that. <laughs> okay. Obviously, Dick Winters would be the, the main people, main person people know. What did Spears think of Winters and vice versa? Uh, these two guys loved each other. I mean, I think there was really no other way to put it. Uh, and even though uh, Winters characterizes Spears in rather stark terms in his memoirs, uh, they had absolute affinity and trust in one another. And the one really ironic thing about all this is that despite that level of camaraderie, uh, they don't see each other for well over 50 years. Uh, Spears went to one reunion right after the war in 1947. And then by and large, he was off the radar. He didn't communicate with too many people other than winners through telephone or written correspondence. Uh, but they, they finally reunite in person in June of 2001. 
uh, when there was an Easy Company reunion coinciding with the release of the miniseries. Uh, and so there's a lot of really great photos from that day that we incorporate in the book uh, that show these two biggest brothers of the Band of Brothers uh, reuniting after nearly 60 years. Okay. Uh, I'll leave you with these questions here. Uh, you can answer them in whatever order. What was your, I don't know, most exciting or delightful or entertaining discovery writing this book? And then what are, what is one question that you would like to have answered about Spears and then about maybe World War II or Easy Company or just in general about this period that you've studied that you haven't been able to figure out? I think one of the most interesting aspects of Spears's career is his account of the Battle of Carantan in June 1944. I was uh, so glad to find a copy of that because it really it put us in his mindset as a tactical leader. And it was written such a short time after the war that it was still fresh in his memory. It isn't an account written 50 or 60 years later. And it really allows us to see the man in the moment. And in my mind, that was the most insightful primary source that we were able to incorporate into the book. One thing that I would like to learn more about Spears, even though we, we covered as much as we could uh, in this book, uh, I would like to hear more about his duties during the Cold War, uh, particularly what he was doing in Vietnam in 1965. We only found slight reference to his presence there in Saigon in 1965, attached with the State Department, uh, but I very much doubt he was doing diplomatic work. Uh, I, it's my speculation that he was working with a clandestine agency, and uh, I, I think that is uh, the one really big uh, continual mystery about Ronald Spears is what role did he play in the origins of the Vietnam War? Uh, it's quite possibly a question that we'll never have the answer to. Okay. Where can we send people? Obviously, I got my copy on Amazon. Where do you want to send people to? A website, Amazon, social media. Where do you want to point people to? Uh, there's a number of places where they can get the book. You can get them through all the regular uh, book outlets. Uh, you can get a personalized copy from me at jaredfrederick.com, or you can visit my co-author's museum, uh, either in person or his website, and that's the Gettysburg Museum of History. I also invite listeners to uh, visit and subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is called Real History. That's R-E-E-L, as in a film reel, where we examine history versus Hollywood subject matter. And that's where you can also find uh, my 10-part breakdown of Band of Brothers, where it excels and where it takes some liberties. And so I think listeners may be interested in that as well. I'm looking that up right now, and I see you have one on John Adams. And so um, that I, I, if I'd have known that, we'd have spent another hour on John Adams. Well, maybe next time. <laughs> Okay, folks, there you go. Ronald Spears probably could ask a thousand more questions about him, but time's limited. Be sure to pick up the book, Fierce Valor. We'll link to that in the show notes. And 
Join the discussion at the newsletter, ryanraysenior.com slash newsletter, newsletter, if I can speak, and we'll talk real soon.